This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have Matthew Armstrong, and we are discussing political warfare. Um, Matthew, a little background on Matthew. Uh, Matthew is a advisor of public diplomacy, former governor on the U.S. Board of Broadcasting, the Broadcasting Board of Governors, and is currently writing a book. Um, he is also, if you go over to his um, Twitter, at Mountain Runner, and his blog, which we'll post, uh, his website and blog, um, it's probably one of the best treatments of political warfare so far that I've, I've seen. Um without any of the typical malarkey that you see on Twitter. Um, <clears throat> so a little background to our conversation today. Um, so post-2016, we've seen sort of um, the discussion of political warfare, of hybrid warfare come to come to the foreground. And this conversation is has been divided into sort of two distinct categories. One is the tech community has decided to focus on bots platforms and information warfare and then the natsec community has focused on hybrid warfare active measures in russia uh, in a broad sense um, missing from the conversation has been what about strategy what is the big picture that's the first thing that's missing the second thing is missing is what about the u.s's role what is the history what is you know how has the u.s engaged in political warfare how, how has it been a victim of political warfare and you know what do we what are the lessons from that what is the big picture so um with that uh please welcome uh, matt armstrong um i want to start off with just a like a very simple question which is can you define for us what is meant by political warfare because um in the in the research for this show uh i found you know multiple definitions one was provided by george kennan um, one was provided by Paul Smith, and then uh, a series of definitions from the new RAND report that was published uh, a month ago or so, or within a month. And it was, each one had a, a slightly different variation. There was a, obviously a theme, but there was no sort of, you know, the definition changed per the, the viewer. So if you could um, give us the, the Armstrong definition. <laughs> Sure. Thanks, Sina. Thanks for the, that introduction. Um, so I'm not going to say that there's necessarily a Matt Armstrong definition to that, but I, I do agree that there's a, a variety of understandings of what political warfare is. I think that recent RAND report, Todd Helmus was a co-author of it. I forget the, the other author. My apologies. Um, I think that was a, a, a good and interesting treatment. Um, there were some shortcomings in, in that report. Um, George Kennan, his 1948 definition, which is probably the one you're looking at, political warfare is the logical application of Clausewitz's doctrine in time of peace, I think is uh, appropriate as well to consider, but I think it's in some ways fairly broad, which was his intent. Um, but what I would do is, what I would like to do is look 
at that period, because I think that's the period at which our anchoring of political warfare, as well as our primary uh, adversary in this space, which is Russia, which is not our only adversary practicing political warfare against us. Um, this is their framework, too. This is the space they're working in, because that early period was the Cold War before Cold War was capitalized, before the proper noun, when it was still a struggle for minds and wills. So a definition that I came across uh, is actually from 1950. I'm going to abridge it slightly here because it is quite long, long, but it gets into the purpose of political warfare may be to strengthen some competing groups or to weaken others, to organize forces whose activities can be directed toward desired ends, to support groups for as long as their objectives conform to one's own, and to fully and help fully controlled and semi-controlled groups and personalities to reach positions of power and influence and eventually take over the government. The examples can be manifestations of sympathy to financing, organizing, equipping of political movements, personal relationships between statesmen, to the infiltration and capture of politically important agencies, um, and so on. And that's from 1950. I think that puts a little bit more color onto uh, George Kennan's white propaganda, covert, clandestine uh, uh, descriptions. But I think Kennan also captures a little bit uh, better that this is about how do you get inside of another country and how do you affect their politics. So whereas military warfare is kinetic stuff first or the threat of kinetic stuff first, political warfare is the kinetic stuff is at the very end. And in, in, a, in a very real sense, it's, an, it's a um, logical application of Clausewitz, period, end of story, because um, this is politics and you are attempting to affect public opinion, which is also one of, one of the things I think we forget here is that this issue of political warfare is founded in the reality that public opinion matters in the conduct of international politics. Interesting. So then when, when, we, when we take the concept of political warfare, how does that compare to public diplomacy? Is there, is there a difference between intent? Is there a difference between... I mean, what, what are the differences between uh, political warfare and public diplomacy? And, and that's a tricky question, too. I've, I've often put the phrase public diplomacy in quotes because I have a master's in public diplomacy, so I'm academically trained in public diplomacy. I've worked in a role of oversight slash advocacy, a dual-hatted contradictory role for American U.S. public diplomacy. Uh, and yet I, I don't know how you can really define it. It is either the softest is softest or it is something a lot more than that. Uh, and I think part of the problem with that definition of public diplomacy it is, is that it is a term much like new media. It actually is a term of – it's actually an, an, an um, adversarial term to old media to diplomacy in this sense. As new media is to old media, public diplomacy is to diplomacy. It was a term born out of the need to make USIA and its Foreign Service information officers as relevant as the State Department and its Foreign Service uh, officers. 
So in this sense, this is part of the struggle we have with what is public diplomacy. So it's not, it doesn't have a real clean definition. And it is a term today that segregates rather than integrates, which taking it back into the comparison to political warfare and public diplomacy is that political warfare is an encompassing integrative concept, whereas our American notion of public diplomacy is a stovepipe, very segregated notion. Now, that said, as you as, as you started the question with, is it a matter of intent? There are activities that are clearly we would call public diplomacy that, in, that somebody else would see as political warfare. And in a very real sense, I think many of those actors would be correct because especially if we look at the heritage of those activities, it's sort of the way they were intended to be. And I'm talking about exchanges, whether they're technical, bureaucratic, um, educational, uh, whatever they are, or speakers, tours, bringing in agricultural consults, advisor speakers, or uh, even sewage system speakers, or political system speakers. We can, in the modern terminology, quote, democracy promotion. Um, there are nations that would look at those as political warfare because in the effort to to create the understanding and implementation of the fundamentals of democratic governance in the areas of education, health, economic bridges, bridging, and other forms of foreign internal defense, they would see that, these other regimes would see that as undermining their, their, their independence, their ability to really take from the people uh, uh, unilaterally. So in that sense, um, it, public diplomacy could be, and I think in some ways rightly perceived as, as political warfare. But um, I, I think that is uh, damaging for it. So another way to look at political warfare that you don't necessarily see public diplomacy in is that political warfare is going to be based in a competitiveness and a hostility in international politics. So you have this overall four-pillar construct of DIME, diplomacy, information, military, and economic power. You can restate that as political action for diplomacy, commerce, or economic warfare for the E. Uh, the I would be psychological warfare, and the M is the same, military. But you can do these health, governance, education, economics, and all this across multiple of those, uh, those pillars so what I'm trying to get at here is that political warfare is a much more action-oriented activity specifically for an objective. Political Public diplomacy is a more passive activity. Also, the other difference between the two is public diplomacy will tend to be bilateral. And in that sense, it's, it's interestingly, it is a two-way intelligence operation. Political warfare, if I'm going to conduct political warfare against you, Sina, I am going to try to do things to undermine you, to make you, make your people uh, uh, do one particular thing, have a particular viewpoint. If I'm going to do public diplomacy, I open up my kimono as I try to get you to open up yours. And it is a bilateral, hey, let's get to know each other, uh, thus an intelligence operation. So the, the, so the... The uh, uh, 
bottom line at the very bottom is that in some ways they're very similar, particularly if the target nation wants to keep their nation closed. North Korea is a, is one easy example. Um, they would consider anything in the, in the uh, friendly public diplomacy space as political warfare. But yet political warfare it, uh, it encompasses so, so much more and is a much more active operation and, again, a much more expansive cross-stovepipe operation. So then when we, when we conceive of the goals of a political warfare campaign, what are the goals in a broad sense? It's not necessarily specific, but, you know, when you go out and wage political warfare, you know, what is, what is the goal of, of such a campaign? So I think we need to step back. It's a good question, but we need to step back. And that is the, the problem gets, it gets into something you said earlier, and that is there's an issue of strategy here. Political warfare is a, is a, if you will, a methodology. You have to know what you want to achieve. What do you want tomorrow to look like? Um, and if you don't know that, then anything in political warfare is just going to be a bunch of tactics thrown together and maybe um, it's a whole heck of a lot of tactics and maybe it's coordinated across different agencies, but it's still tactical if you don't have a strategic objective. Taken more broadly, um, what you want, the reason why you'd employ political warfare is to affect the will to act in some way. Now, I like this phrase, the struggle for minds and wills, because it is a phrase that uh, Harry Truman and, and Dwight Eisenhower used, not battle for hearts and minds. In fact, I have said for over a decade now, I'd love to see a Ph.D. Uh, on how the phrase, the struggle for hearts and minds, affected American foreign policy in the first part of the century, because none of this is a battle. It's not something that you win or lose and you move on to the next engagement. This is not about hearts. It's not about likability. It is affecting the will to act, either in support of what you want or not in opposition. And so your political warfare um, would be in this struggle. It would be affecting the will to act. But it, it simply cannot be waged effectively um, if you don't have direct access to the White House, the Department of State, the Department of Treasury, Department of Justice, basically if it is not a whole whole of government, as abysmal as that phrase is, not a whole government operation. The field operation simply cannot work unless they have a common staffing point and a common uh, um, command. So it's simply not going to succeed in improvising um, without a policy that's presented. Um, so the challenge here is if you don't know what you want to achieve, just saying you want to do political warfare is much like give me some information operations. It's not pixie dust that you, that you sprinkle onto a problem. Interesting. So then to maybe dig it a little deeper, when, you, when we conceptualize political warfare as action, um, do, is it is it appropriate to use the words offensive and defensive, or is it sort of more appropriate to use reactive and proactive? Because I, I think offensive and defensive imply something different than 
you know, reactive and proactive, whereas offensive, you know, the, it, a military operation comes to mind and defensive, you know, a wall or a trench comes to mind, whereas reactive and proactive seems to be more based in a message where somebody offers a message and then you react to it and then you offer a, a counterpoint. So when, when we discuss political warfare, which which sort of model or 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 you know examples more useful? I think I think both. You're, you're going to take an offensive. You're going to move ahead. You're going to have to conduct defensive activities, whether they are reactive or preemptive. Um, or proactive, um, uh, all the above. Uh, you can put in here the concept of psychological defense just as well. Um, and this is an area that the U.S. has uh, uh, in the 20th century um, a couple of notable examples of psychological defense, uh, even though we generally didn't think of it that way. So I think in putting it in terms of military framework, as a, in a military framework as you did, yes, there's going to be offensive, defense, it's going to be proactive, uh, preemptive, reactive. You're going to try to inoculate against the adversarial actions, um, and you're going to have to, uh, to plan, and you have to uh, be dynamic and flexible in your, uh, in your activities. So I think part of the challenges that we have today in understanding this and framing this is that past political warfare, as we think about it, like in the early part of the Cold War, the first decades of the Cold War, was that we were fighting a stateless enemy, both a state and stateless enemy. There was the Soviet Union, but there was also the communist parties uh, in various nations and, and, and uh, similar actors. But driving them was still some kind of ideology as perverse as it may have become by certain actors, um, uh, you know, Stalin and his successors were not true communists trying to promote Marxist-Leninism. That was clear. Uh, but yet there was still an ideology, and you could understand the structure, and you could sort of figure out what they're going to say and do and moving ahead. And in fact, that may be somewhat, this classic view may still be somewhat true of China, but it's not of Russia. Um, so if you're looking at this campaign in terms of, say, Russia, you have to look at it slightly differently. There's no Marx or Lenin to study. There is instead Putin and those around him who want to be and those who want to be around him to work in his fa curry his favor. So it's not political warfare, warfare for the sake of political ideology in the sake of Russia. But in, the, in a classic sense, if you will, personal enrichment of the king. And so how do, you, how do you think of political warfare then? On, on his side, yeah, there's going to be offensive. Yeah, maybe there's going to be defensive and preempting, and you're going to make feigns in a particular – or you're going to make strikes in a particular direction to try to uh, destabilize your, your opponent. But are his goals the same as before? Does that matter to how we think about these things? I think it does. Um, but still, in the end, it's going to have an offensive element, a defensive element, a reactive and preemptive and uh, proactive element. 
So, I mean, in terms of defense, how do you how do you create a defense against this? If it's if it's a matter of if if the strategy is is picking and choosing particular groups to to nudge into a sort of direct like into a, a sort of action, how do you in a modern in our modern era how do you defend against political warfare? If if for instance adversaries have access to Facebook to Twitter, to, you know, the social media of a, of a target country. So one of the, one of the issues, and I've put this on Twitter and I've said this in conferences is that in this, in the, in the answer to your question, we often, and this goes into the tech community and I've put this on to these uh, computational propaganda groups is that we discount the consumer. We're trying to protect, insulate, ignore all at the same time the consumer. Think about this in terms of the quote drug war. Um, so you can go after the grower, you can go after the, the distributor and the supplier, but if you don't go after the consumer, there still is a demand for the product. The product price may go up, anything may happen, but there's still going to be a demand. And there's the same issue here. There's a, a similar issue at play here. If somebody is, uh, um, if, if somebody is creating this uh, abhorrent propaganda, it has no effect unless it's consumed, right? This is actually one of the interesting things I find about the studies of propaganda. If you look at the 1940s, 50s, and and real early 60s. Propaganda studies really concern themselves with the efficacy of the message, whereas you get into conversations about propaganda today because it exists, because you've seen it, because you know about it and you can comment on it, therefore it is effective. That's simply, I I think, sort of inaccurate. Um, So if we step back, I think the um, well, the first thing we need to do is pay attention. Why is this content gaining traction? Why does it? And what we have done in the past is we focused on the consumer, the psychological defense. You, you had elements of education. You had a conversation with your people. You, they knew what was going on. They, you built trust with your people. In communication models, trust is substantial. It is very important. I had a conversation with a senior leader in the Russian um, uh, media, and this person said, "You know, RT, we wouldn't have uh, we wouldn't have much of a market in the U.S. if the American media was doing their job." And I think there's truth in that, and I think there's something to be said in that. Is that the the Russians in in this case? are exploiting uh, our own divisions of our own making. And I think we are too quick to forget about that. Um, And so how do you repair that? How do you deal with that? Well, education is a part of it. Uh, Communicating to America, so not just education in schools, but uh, broadly, how you open up the conversation, you build trust. So these messages aren't taken as golden. Um, There's another element here is that, you know, I joke I'm old enough to remember that when 
I heard it on the internet was a derogative. That was meant to, uh, you know, that was to say that something that you saw was, you know, can't be taken at face value. And now today you hear people say, I heard it on the internet. And that is a, that's a verification that it must be true. And so there's a problem with the consumer here. We can't assume that we can censor the people, that we can censor all the content for them. They have to step up, and so we have to empower them. And, and I see us taking no steps in that. So if, if I may give you a historical example, the book that I'm writing, I've, I've found that the conversations about the Committee for Public Information almost totally ignore the founding. Fellow, The fellow George Creel did not set it up. In fact, he was brought in at the last moment, and when he was asked if he wanted the job, his questions included how much does it pay and what are the responsibility. He was not the creator of the organization. It was, and this I get into substantial detail uh, in, in the forthcoming book, it was actually a product of a need for psychological defense in the United States. And it was a unifying body, if you will, to... Um, to provide content to uh, 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 locally organic, both at the city state level, particularly at the state level, but at the city and county level, uh, local uh, educational uh, information bureaus. And this was the CPI thing was sort of the broad, hey, let's at the national level bring all the agencies together and, and communicate out. Now, how it actually worked and, and what it did and how George Creel took it and spun it in his own direction is, is a separate conversation. But we've had experiences in psychological defense. Um, we have forgotten about those. They were distorted, whatever it is. But we cannot forget about the consumer here. And in all the discussions, we're ignoring the consumer. And because we do not have a strategy, because we don't know what we want tomorrow to look like, because there is no leadership from the top, uh, we continue to ignore the consumer. Because for some, the adversarial messages are welcome. And that's not a good fit. And that when we last played effectively, or that's quite, uh, I use that term loosely, in the space of political warfare, we had an understanding that the adversarial messages were unhealthy. And so we had civil society step up. And I can, uh, I'll let you ask another question, but I can get into our national effort to try to train the government and civil society in identifying and understanding the tactics, techniques, and procedures of communist subversion and political warfare and that how that was blocked. Uh, by a single senator. So um, it requires education for that defensive piece, not just formulating the proper uh, nouns and verbs uh, to counter a message, which by definition is reactive. In fact, in my Twitter profile, I, I mentioned anti-propaganda because to say counter-propaganda is immediately allowing the adversary to set the time, tempo, place, manner of engagement. You need to get ahead of it. I mean, so, oh, I'm sorry. I mean, you, you bring up a really good point, which is when we when we discuss why political warfare succeeds, 
is it because of the target's weakness or is it because of the attacker's message? I think, um, especially post 2016, it, it really seems like that, you know, when we look at the examine the Russians messaging, it was very crass and it was very sort of, um, it was obviously, when you look at it, it was obviously propaganda, but to a degree it succeeded. And I think there's this, there's this like two, you know, two parts of an argument, which is, you know, is the message succeeding because the filter is broken because we, you know, consume and, and, and don't criticize what we're seeing, or is it because of the strength of the attacker's message? So in your view, you know, is it a matter of the target's weakness or is it a matter of an attacker's message? Or should we just think about this as a combination of the two things? It's absolutely both. Um, one, you can see the evolution of the of the Russian activities. It's much more clever. It's much more understanding of, of who we are and the issues at hand. Uh, what are the divisive issues and playing on those? Um, uh, you, you've seen folks like Ben Nemo uh, look at how accounts are going to be sp- uh, um, pushing both sides of an issue. But people don't look at the speaker. They look at the message. They don't analyze who is saying what and what is the trajectory of this person, what is the background of this, this I say person, but uh, uh, outlet, uh, whatever that outlet is, um, a, a traditional uh, terrestrial or over-the-air broadcast cable or whatever it's going to be, or Twitter account or Instagram, whatever it is. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's both of those. Uh, if the adversary was, or if the, the speaker was um, saying, a, giving a poorly crafted message, it's going to be harder for that to gain traction. It's just going to, but if it's, if it's creating a message that resonates with some people, then that will have some traction. Now, one of the benefits that the Russians exploit is because these people, you know, those mess those messages generally probably guarantee don't have an effect on you because you are a smart news consumer. You consider the the content, you consider uh, what it's saying, you analyze it. That you're not their audience, and I think this is part of the problems of we mirror image. Why does this stuff succeed? Well. A, you're not the target audience. Look at who the target audience might be. Um, but even that, that's hard to ascertain. I have, uh, uh, there's somebody I know that's a, um, I've known this person for, how old am I? 35 years, I guess. Ouch. And um, he's a uh, federal agent. And on Facebook, he was sharing uh, uh, content from 10 GOP, the confirmed Twitter account. Oh boy. <laughs> and I challenged him on this and, uh, he didn't care. He didn't know a and B he didn't care. That it was from a Russian account. It gave a message that he agreed with. Um, and so it, it, it really is a challenge here. Um, how do you deal with those, those folks? Um, so yeah, no, there's, um, 
it is both they are saying the right things. And now, I, I'm sorry, what I, was, what I was starting to say is that one of the advantages that the Russians have today is they'll say six different things. Contradictory most of the time. Doesn't matter. Because the way their audience is, is mentally configured, if you will, the fact that five of those six are contradictory, they just ignore them and they just take and latch on to that sixth. I, I noticed that in the Skripal, their messaging for the Skripal poisoning, where it was, I, I think that like it's up to 10 messages or 20, like it's just, it, it almost feels like they were just machine, machine gunning out like messages and, you know, basically seeing which one sticks. And then the one that yeah. sticks, that's the success. And it was just well, and it may, and several of them may stick with different audiences. And again, they're not after an informed population. They're not trying to inform you. They are trying to confuse you. So imagine you're the person that barely looks at the news, sees this one story, somebody you trust or you think you trust sends you something. You, you're like, ah, yeah, okay, I believe that. And then you hear something else. You're like, okay, I'm overwhelmed. I just can't understand this. I don't want to pay attention to it. So you know, that, that's part of their – it fits them. You know, it is, it's harder work to think about these things uh, and to, to pay attention and to weigh the information. You know, a bunch of years ago before social media really took off or before there was social media, we would be looking at a couple of different newspapers. We would be looking at a couple of different broadcasts, maybe a radio broadcast. And we'd be triangulating between the stories to see what the actual story was. You know, reading between the lines. So now, oh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I was I was reminded of um, sort of I, I, this might be in the weeds, but sort of reflexive attacks. And so um, this is it was made famous by uh, Timothy Thomas. But if you um, if you're in the audience and you, you want to dig deeper into the Russian view of things, it's really fascinating. But um, they make this point that, that that the way you defend against reflexive attacks, that is your adversary presents data that he wants you to see and then guides you to a certain decision, is that you have to have a strong filter. And at, to your point, critical thought, um, you know, good intelligence work, etc. But it seems like when you at a society-wide level, it seems like the filter, it, when the filter breaks, that's when political warfare succeeds. Because, you know, if, if you aren't a strong news consumer and Facebook, you know, by design is sort of, you know, putting fake news or um, misinformation and disinformation into your profile, into your, not profile, but um, feed, then it, it becomes harder to sort of say, you know, to challenge that, that story. But, you know, it's, it's kind of scary. I mean, I mean, to your point, like, how do you, how do you rebuild the filter? How do you rebuild, you know, that defense? So, as I said, I think it depends a lot on the consumer. Um, you know, I saw that bit 10 GOP and I knew that that was a problem because I'm actively paying attention to, to these matters. Because, you know, the Facebook feed is not just feeding you stuff. It's feeding you stuff that your friends are consuming as well. And 
this is part of this social aspect. It's the social part of social media. It's not just the media side. It's the social side. So there's a mutual reinforcement. We can't just blame Facebook for this. Um, if we want to pick a platform, I would actually pick on Pinterest. If you look at Pinterest, uh, I've seen several examples, and I created a, a, a dummy account to test this out, and it's absolutely true. Pinterest's algorithm is a heck of a lot more aggressive uh, than Facebook. Anyway, it's, it pales in comparison um, compared to Pinterest. Uh, you just look at something. You don't even have to like something on Pinterest, and all of a sudden you're inundated with the most extreme version of that. So test it out on your own. But there still is, and so let's stick on Facebook because that's more social in the social media because you've got your friends and all that stuff. Um, you're still you're looking at it, and your friends are looking at it, and your friends are sharing it. And if you're simply accepting it and saying, I like this, without, again, asking whether or not it's a dog behind that to play on the old cartoon. Nobody on the internet knows you're a dog. Then whose fault is that? Is that really Facebook's fault? Yeah, I think they're, they're complicit. But again, I, I put a lot of the responsibility. I'm not absolving the consumer here. When my friend's father posts um, just ridiculously uh, false, easily proven false uh, memes as you know as as things that he likes you know political statements that's his that's something that he is actively doing and the fact that it fit that it's in my feed is not because of some Facebook algorithm but it's because he's my friend and so is that really Facebook's fault now again they're complicit it's something we need to um, we're, we're forgetting and we're, we're absolving the consumer here in this. And that's, that's a problem. The user, the consumer. So I think there's an analogy here to junk mail. Oh, right. We hate junk mail, but apparently it's still profitable. You know, that one tenth of percent that responds to junk mail makes it uh, profitable for that junk mailer. So I want to maybe switch footings to to maybe engaging history a bit in, in the sense of, um, you know, when we look at the United States, you know, how has the United States waged political warfare? And I, I think we touched it, touched on this in, in the beginning, but when, when the United States, you know, you know, when we look at the United States engaging in political warfare, is it really political warfare or is it public diplomacy? Because, you know, it, it, it just fascinates the heck out of me, like this idea of that you have political warfare, but you also have public diplomacy and that the United States, you know, you know, tends to engage both. But there's no real clear line. So the and I, this, I believe, is a very important question and goes into a question that I often get which we'll get to later, has to do with USIA, Active Measures Working Group. But to start with this historical side, which for me is not going to include USIA and Active Measures Working Group. But um, the U.S. has a 
certainly has from our very founding a relationship with political warfare. The Declaration of Independence, which we often in the public diplomacy space call America's first document of public diplomacy or, or however you wish to call it. It was also a, a uh, um, part of the political warfare toolkit. It was less about saying, hey, we're independent. That's it, folks. And more of laying out here are the grounds of us declaring independence. Won't you side with us? And it was attempting to sway public opinion. And along those lines, um, we sent privateers against English ports during the revolution. Why? To shape the opinions of the merchants so that they would affect the opinion of the king. Of course, he was a crazy king and it, 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 that didn't really work out. But we were incorporating all sorts of methods and means of political warfare against the crown and in trying to enlist others to our cause. Now, I, I don't want to imply we're doing political warfare to bring French in. We weren't. That's more in the space of, of uh, public diplomacy, if you will, or direct diplomacy. But I'll give you another example because these conversations are more interesting when you include something that nobody probably remembers or, or knows about. Now, this was at a, term, a, a time of all-out war, but this really sort of fits into this political warfare space. So at the end, near the end of World War II, the Japanese government offered on August 10th terms of surrender. Now, this was really getting out on the worldwide wires, but, you know, worldwide broadcast, but it was not getting to the Japanese people themselves. The Japanese government was not transmitting it to the people. The, uh, uh, they were actively jamming. So there was, uh, it really wasn't happening. And so on the next day, August 11th, we determined there was a need for action. The Secretary of State got the president's approval. 30 minutes later, Office of War Information was given the order to act. Within an hour, the uh, Japanese section of OWI drafted language for a pamphlet. Two hours later, the State Department approved a modified version. I think it's funny it took them two hours to modify it and only um, an hour to create it. But uh, 30 minutes later, it was sent by wireless shortwave to Honolulu, where it was translated by OWI's uh, Japanese language staff. They converted a 100,000-watt transmitter, an OWI transmitter, uh, to send a radio photo. We would call that a fax today. To send it to, their, to another trans-OWI transmitter in Saipan, which happened to also be a B-29 base. Um, there they made plates for printers, and they produced 3 million copies of the letter to the Japanese people. And within 24 hours of that uh, conversation with the president, B-29s were flying over eight Japanese cities, dropping these pamphlets. After the war, the Japanese government admitted that that public pressure, the resulting public pressure, caused them to have the conversation, to extend, continue the conversation, and uh, uh, surrender to the United States. That's a form of political warfare. Now, that was taking place in all-out war. So that's another example that we had. 
Another example would be for the uh, the coordinator for Inter-American Activities, later the Office of Inter-American Activities, Nelson Rockefeller's office that he created. Uh, um, I say he created because he gave the blueprint to uh, Roosevelt. Roosevelt didn't want him, but uh, actually Forrestal didn't want him in the job, but uh, Roosevelt appointed him. But that was countering Nazi and lesser threat Japanese uh, political warfare activities across Latin America. Uh, the Germans were trying to conduct, uh, uh, separate Latin American nations from their relations with the United States. Uh, there was a social aspect. There was an ac- economic aspect. The Germans were trying to, uh, were making promises of uh, future rich economic contracts once the war was over, on and on. Um, in the immediate Actually, before the Missouri sailed into Tokyo Bay, we were arming for the political warfare against the, the Russians, exchange programs, etc. But um, we really – so those are several point-in-time examples. You can actually pull up even, even more. But the problem is that we generally do not train for political warfare. We bring people in at a particular point in time. We train them in stovepipes. Um, so, you know, as, as one guy said – the great prolonged war of ideas must be waged with as much skill, professional competence, and steadfastness as are needed in any military conflict. And as somebody else said, as a group that we may get to, uh, and I wrote about, said uh, uh, 10 years later, someday this nation will recognize that global non-military conflict must be pursued with the same intensity and preparation as global military conflict. We, we haven't done that. So we've had some experiences with it, but it's something that we kind of step into and then we step out of. And be maybe it's because of our tendency to disconnect from history. We don't remember these things. And we're always trying to recreate the wheel. So then in terms of the at the bureaucratic level, you, I think – a lot of has been made. I think James Clapper most famously said we need the USIA, uh, U- United States Information Agency, on steroids. And then in, in the course of researching the show, um, you know, you have the, the Active Measures Working Group of, of the 80s and 90s, and then you have the Global Engagement Center. That's um, sort of um, sort of what I took it as is sort of this – it's supposed to be the USIA, but it's not. Um, but in, in terms of in terms of sort of understanding the bureaucratic history, how do we compare and contrast between the USIA, the Active Measures Working Group, the Global Engagement Center, and even the Broadcasting Board of Governors? How do we sort of understand those those organizations and those offices? Sure, I think it's an important question. I think, um, with all due respect, Clapper's statement was uh, grossly misinformed and yet is conventional wisdom. Um, USIA was created in 1953 because the State Department, which owned all of the responsibilities, virtually all of the responsibilities that were put into USIA, some came from the Defense Department, um, but for the most part, USIA was created by tearing, what was it, one-third of the staff out of the State Department and putting in into the separate agency. And that was 
willfully, if not gleefully, uh, accepted by the State Department. Dean Acheson um, was happy to get rid of it. Uh, if you read his President at the Creation, he speaks about how the State Department muffed its intelligence role. It was the central intelligence agency, and it um, completely abrogated willfully its responsibility to maintain that, which created the space, if not the need, for an actual central intelligence group, later agency. But he also speaks about how it muffed, that's his word that he used for the intelligence side, muffed its information role. Um, Now, the State Department information role was, uh, let's call it dry for the sake of argument, dry news and information, because it was, after all, the foreign ministry. It wasn't aggressive information. It wasn't really fitting into, didn't fit into the space of political warfare. In fact, there's an interesting conversation uh, in the Congress at the time, Senator Bill Benton, who formerly was the Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs, um, back at a time when there was only one undersecretary and there were only seven assistant secretaries, therefore it had a real position of real authority and uh, uh, real resources. Uh, Benton had been the guy that uh, helped pass through what became the Smith-Munt bill, which was a bill of authorization and had zero limitation to it. But he was now a senator and he wanted state to get more aggressive. Um, It was a big problem. The point, and you can read about all that stuff in the book that's coming, but the, the point is is that state didn't want to do these things. It was sterile in its information delivery. There were problems with it. It didn't want to deal with it. When you had the people that were eager behind it, including Marshall, including Benton, including a whole bunch of other folks, when they moved on, Atchison threw his hands up and said, let's just get this thing out. I don't agree with the process. I think this is not political warfare. I think this is conventional warfare. We're going on that footing with the Russians. For him, Korea, um, Stalin testing bombs. These issues, these were indicative of a different realm. Um, And he replaced Kennan with Nitzi, all these things. So anyway, USIA was created. But what's interesting is USIA at the time was not charged with political warfare. It was essentially a public affairs agency for the U.S. government on steroids. Um, prior to this and around this time, you had the establishment of Radio Free, I'm sorry, Radio Liberty and Radio Free Europe. In fact, the last assistant secretary of state for public affairs, the guy that ran all the State Department exchange and information programs, Voice of America, the speakers, tubers, all these things before that position was effectively abolished um, uh, and reassigned uh, and USIA created, he went off and ran Radio Liberty and was the president of Radio Liberty from 1954 to 1975, I think it was. Um, uh, so you, you have this question of, okay, if USIA was such an active actor in this space, RFE and, and RL what were their necessities and why was the CIA putting those operations up? Um, there's some other details like there was an intent to privatize the shortwave broadcast that came out of OWI, later known as Voice of America, but we can get into that and the question of whether or not they privatized that when that had then satisfied the RFERL mission. But the, the point of that long-winded background on USIA is that at the, nearly the same time, 
there were discussions to create this thing called the Freedom Academy, which I wrote about in an article on War on the Rocks and is coming out in a uh, much more longer footnoted version in a uh, book uh, uh, edited by King's College London. It's supposed to come out this year, I understand. Um, is that we tried to create an establishment to train uh, U.S. government, U.S. civil society, foreign-friendly government, foreign-friendly civil society actors on the tactics, techniques, and procedures of communist political warfare. This wasn't a, a center of activity. It was a center of research and training and understanding. And in all the discussions of our need for a, quote, political West Point, in fact, that was one article in Time magazine, the title of one article, all these discussions around this, Nothing had to do with USIA whatsoever because USIA wasn't in this space. It wasn't about USIA was lacking. That just there was nothing, nothing there. Um, but that was blocked by Senator Fulbright, who felt that communism in Russia was not a threat to us, which is somewhat ironic uh, considering. Um, so you have USIA, which was not what we think it was. It was not an actor of political warfare. Uh, it might have dabbled a bit here and there in some activities, but it was that might be might resemble it. But they were not the active actor in this space. As far as the active measures working group, I think what people forget is that that what they should do is they should read an NDU published report authored by uh, uh, Fletcher Schoen and Chris Lamb. Uh, it was published in 2012. It took three years to stand up the active measures working group and it had one effective year spanning 1986 and 1987. I'm sorry, but the polygraph operation that's run out of RFERL in partnership with voice of America today has had a longer life and a greater reach and touched more stories than active measures working group has. So I think the AMWG is an overblown activity that we reach for because we really have no other touch points. It's simply we, we simply don't have that history. We conflate the Cold War uh, as, as it was one period, and it, and it really was a, a struggle for minds and wills in the first part, and then it was a, a, a bipolar uh, uh, military-facing conflict in the second part. And we, we just struggled. And again, Active Measures Working Group wasn't until, you know, really a few years before the end of the Cold War. It wasn't a political warfare environment at that time. You asked about um, uh, Global Engagement Center. Uh, I think in the Thornberry Amendment to the NDAA that uh, legis- gave legislative authority to the, to the GEC, what, you're, what you saw was a congressional attempt to create something like USIA in the sense of a hub organization. Because previously it existed under executive order authority only, and which meant it could disappear at any time. Uh, and uh, Chairman Thornberry wanted to give a, uh, quote, permanence to it. it. It has a lifespan, but it's not within a year or two. It's further out. But this is a legislative effort it's not an executive effort. They can't mandate the GEC to do something. Now, the language broadened the scope of GEC, but you still can't mandate it to do something. There is the executive branch and there is the legislative branch. And so the GEC is still, yes, it's a vessel. It has potential. 
we already saw a former Secretary of State not spend now. I think it's in it. I don't know that it is accurate to say he failed to spend. We can see that it actually comes through other mechanisms, if you know how government works. But there was a big pot of money for the GEC to spend, and that pot of money was not spent. And um, so that, too, is simply a vessel that's sitting there. But even that is of questionable potential utility, especially if it is not truly center uh, to a strategy by government. Again, it will simply be a tactical operation. As far as the BBG, I think another element of USIA that is completely confused is that the radio operations of USIA took more prominence as the as Russia and its satellites shut down the more effective face-to-face activities. And so you had to rely on radio more. BBG, while technically established in 94, 1994 became an independent agency in 1999 when USI was um, abolished. But it's a news and information operation. It is not a tool of political warfare. Um, it is not a, an aggressive actor. And it it is effective with what really is a niche but potentially very powerful and therefore with great potential uh, audience. Uh, it is not in RT. It is not a counter to RT. It is not a counter to most of Russian propaganda that analysts are going and pundits are going to be commenting on because it is not operating in the same spaces, nor do I think it should, but it's not authorized to be doing that. So BBG is not a part of this at all. And again, it's not, it, it, it is a journalism operation. If you want to take it from the perspective of, of Russia, it's weaponizing journalism. It's weaponizing the truth. It's trying to empower people by making them think and know the truth and have verifiable facts and understanding the fundamentals of democratic principles, uh, rule of law, uh, accountability, and, and whatnot. Um, but that is, again, you know, it, it's my time on the board. It was uh, and after there's a gross misunderstanding of the utility and power and direction of author- and authority of the BBG. What's interesting is I think a large, well, formerly larger component of the USA um, family, the Bureau of International Information Programs, IIP, which is in state and was a more massive uh, uh, operate, was a much more, much larger operation than it, it is now was under direct control of state and could actually be a much more aggressive and interesting operation is now is uh, over the past several coordinators. Uh, it's a virtually meaningless operation that most people have no idea still exists. I don't even know what it does anymore. So there are some bureaucratic elements here and there, but there's a, uh, a, a real problem. You know, part of the question is should get global engagement center remain in the state department uh, operating with in the state department uh, in that realm, uh, I think that is a very valid question. Um, and so, you know, the question that you had was, how do we understand the legacy? I think we completely misunderstanding. I think, um, with all due respect, Clapper's testimony and commentary on USIA was completely ill-informed and misunderstanding. Um, but I understand uh, the point. Uh, but we don't have a touch point here. So. I want to maybe switch footing into looking at ethics in political warfare because 
Um, there, there's been a recent sort of spat of articles in the New York Times where I think uh, Max Fisher had an article where um, in Sri Lanka, Buddhists were sort of um, nudged into like mob violence against Muslim businesses. Uh, you have the sort of Facebook's role in the Rohingya um, massacre, mass killing. And then you also, if I remember correctly, Pulse, Paul Smith's book on, on political warfare, his chapter on the Nazis was kind of interesting because he, he split it up into um, the Nazi campaign against the United States using America first and sort of making sure the United States doesn't enter the war. But the rest of the chapter was sort of like his explanation of the the Holocaust through the lens of political warfare, of turning one group against another and then, you know, targeting, you know, the Jews, gypsies, whatever, you know, for mass killing. So my question is, you know, what is an ethical model? You know, I, I think before you answer, I think mass killing is, is obviously the most extreme dramatic model, uh, dramatic sort of example, but also um, as far as the United States is concerned, you know, are there limits to interfering with, say, an ally's politics? So Germany or South Korea, you know, what is the, what is that limit? What is that ethical limit? Is there one even? So, yeah, if I may, let me let me add to my last question just real quickly. Um, that underlying, I should have said this before, but underlying the uh, understanding of the legacy of USIA Active Measures Working Group, that is that our modern thinking, as Clapper's comment suggests, although I don't think, I, I can't determine exactly what he was thinking there, that if we redo the org chart, the organizational chart of government, we will come up with a solution. That Redoing the wire diagram does not create a strategy. It may create the possibility of better, improved, more uh, uh, timely tactics, but it doesn't compensate for a strategy. And I think that's part of what's really misunderstanding the misunderstanding behind USIA. USIA was established, was the lesser part of a two-part government reorganization by Eisenhower. He was effectively reorganizing the government in the DIME model, which is really interesting. If you look back and you look at the reorganization plans number seven and eight, USIA was the lesser of this two-part large reorganization. But you had the right person in the Oval. You had the right people in the right places of the executive agencies. And you had the right people in the Congress. You had broad conversations on these topics. That's not, And, and you still had the right people having the conversations in the 80s when the Active Measures Working Group was stood up. Now, you didn't need authority to do that, legislative authority to, 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 to run that, but you had the right people pushing the right pe- uh, issues at the right places and the right bureaucracies and all that sort of stuff. The GEC is a legislative attempting a legislative fix, but it still can't make the executive work. But you can't simply shift things around in an organizational box and hope that it's going to be like a, a puzzle on Indiana Jones and all of a sudden the door opens. So I just wanted to uh, uh, put that back out there. As far as the ethical model, I think it's really interesting. One, an ethical model is uh, 
uh, implies that there's normative behavior. Normative behavior implies that there is a punishment if you violate that normative behavior. Um, I don't know that we have a international system that is capable of supporting that at this time. With regard to the Nazis, I think there's a really interesting uh, uh, story about organizational behavior in the Nazis. Um, when Hitler took power, he didn't take over the entire government. The foreign ministry, for example, was still, for the first bunch of years, still under the control of the, um, uh, uh, let's call them the um, technocrats, uh, still uh, diplomats. And so in Latin America, the, uh, the foreign ministry, the embassies, were complaining to Berlin saying these Nazis running around the Latin American countries are really making it difficult for the foreign ministry to conduct trade deals, to do this and that, and they're really interfering with diplomacy. And then finally, when the Nazis took over the foreign ministry – there was an interesting issue that came about, and that is the foreign minister, um, I just blanked on his name, the Nazi foreign minister, he and Goebbels went at it. They fought. The issue was the foreign minister said, hey, Goebbels, you own domestic propaganda. I own international propaganda. I am the foreign minister. Goebbels said, no, I own global." The uh, foreign ministry actually sent people over to Goebbels headquarters to seize printing presses, and there was a armed standoff between the two. Later, the foreign minister and Goebbels uh, go to Hitler and basically say, hey, boss, you need to resolve this. He says, go to my train car. Don't come out until you re resolve this, until you two resolve this. They go, and the foreign minister Come And they both come back and after, I think it was six hours, something really ridiculous, and said, no, we can't. You need to resolve this. And he never does. Point being is that even in this, in this um, regime that we think had dominant propaganda and had all this stuff set, you still had a bureaucratic fight when the leader was unable to set his strategic vision. And you had a continuation of the domestic propagandist fighting the foreign ministry who believed he owned – the foreign propaganda, and you had this bureaucratic fight. So I think there's another lesson to take from the, the Nazis is that even if we think these people are good at something, they will still suffer bureaucratic fight if you don't have the leadership in place. Um, as far as the another element of this ethical model, I think if you if you actually lay out your strategy, you're going to have some sort of framework to understand what is the cost you're willing to bear to achieve your objective. You will then be able to determine what is the cost you are willing to extract from your allies, not just your adversaries, but allies and neutrals to achieve your objective. And I think that's where the limits of the ethical model come to play, especially since, um, there's a greater propensity for anonymous or at least hard to attribute acts in today's um, environment. And I'm not just talking about text and images, but, you know, data streams, you know, cyber attacks, et cetera. Um, uh, so I think the ethical model is basically 
what are you willing to do? And are you willing to lay down, establish your principles and operate against your principles and have your principles support? One of the things that really mattered in the 40s and the 50s, particularly in the American execution of let's in, in, in the beginning of the Cold War, was our information activities were established to have a conversation, make known what our policies were. And I don't know that we've been in that position for much of this century, where sometimes we were just trying to change the subject uh, away because we were, we were doing something that was difficult to have a conversation about. So one of the, one of the nice advantages that we generally have is that truth is our weapon. We're okay with sunshine. Our adversaries don't want sunshine. Hence, that's why they um, exercise often extreme censorship. Russia is doing that now. China is, does that. Um, and so I think that is what's going to frame the ethical model. Interesting. So I want to maybe, um, for the last bit of the show, um, evaluate the Russian campaign against the United States um, from the period of 2015 to 2018. And I, I want to look at it from a strategic standpoint in that um, did you find, you know, do we consider the Russians to be successful? You know, why were they successful? And then, you know, what are the consequences in the sense of um, do we view the Russians as victims of their own success given sort of the response, uh, the public response at all levels against the Russians sort of? from both this uh, reinterest in uh, hybrid warfare down to Twitter, um, sort of the more paranoid, you know, parts of Twitter. Um, but, but how do we, when we evaluate the Russian campaign against the United States, how do we evaluate it? How do we think of their strategy and sort of the way they implemented it? It's an important question. And it's one that I think is often loaded with comments that are, if you will, mirror images, mirror imaging, based in mirror imaging. We assume that there is some strategic vision going on in the Kremlin. I think the, there is overwhelming evidence that there is not. There is a lot of opportunism. Um, they're, they are not creating the fissures. They are exploiting them. They are feeling about. You have centrally controlled, directed, supported, funded, um, encouraged activities as much as you have peripheral activities by people that want to curry favor with the Kremlin, as much as you have outside opportunists. For example, it was uh, a bunch of Mod uh, there was a bunch of Moldovan teenagers that had their fake news sites. Were they trying to create problems? No, they're just trying to make a buck. They just wanted to uh, uh, get money to date girls. That was all there was. And yet, and you have others um, that are useful idiots, but you have others that are different kinds of opportunists, like uh, Infowars. 
you have others that are much closer into the camp, like uh, uh, was it the Global Research, whatever it is, up in Canada or something. You have World News Daily or something like that. I forget what WND. So, one, you have to get the proper context is that there is not a massive command and control structure at work here. And two, that there is not a real strategic vision that's at work here. I think it is a very simple thing and that simple objective, and that is create problems, create issues. Um, I don't care how you do it, go create those problems. And in that sense, they've been successful. Again, they've been successful because we allowed them to be um, for a variety of reasons. We encouraged them. We did poor. We we failed to take take advantage of situations. We just failed to shut down opportunities for them. Uh, You know, like to note that when – RT came to the United States. Uh, they were not designated a foreign agent. Why? I have no idea, but this was the beginning of the Obama administration when they were trying to do their, quote, reset with Russia. And that was, uh, uh, that became a problem. Um, there was no reason not to, other perhaps than they just wanted to maintain friendly relations and didn't want to uh, upset the cart. So I think the, the way we evaluate it is, in a nutshell, in the fewest words possible, it's been a success. If we consider their objective to create dissent and confusion, um, I think they've done that. They've created distrust. They have um, um, uh, caused us, I'm sorry, assisted internal arguments. They haven't caused them. They assisted them. They threw kerosene on the fire whenever they could. Sometimes they made mistakes. Sometimes nothing happened. But because of the beauty of their unorganized, disorganized system, uh, decentralized system as well, uh, they can make multiple efforts at once. And they could do uh, 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 ridiculous storylines through their official media as well as through their unofficial and not be held to account. Even Lavrov could get out there and say contradictory things. And the media, in its attempt to find equivalency, uh, wouldn't challenge. So, you know, this, that was an exploitation of uh, Western norms uh, that they took advantage of. I mean, was that really their doing? No, they just took advantage of it. So, I mean, in, in that sense, can we, are the Russians the victims of their own success? Because no. they've, they've drawn so much attention to themselves that, you know, we've, the U.S. The US has applied sanctions. There's this, you know, active discussion going on about Russian interference at, I mean, at, at all levels, at, you know, the same level. And then obviously there's the Twitter discussion, which is, can be, off kilter sometimes, but I mean, in, in that sense, I mean, can we consider them a victim of their own success that they were so successful that, you know, that it's sort of backfiring on them or, 
or not. I mean, no, I wouldn't. At first, I wouldn't call them a victim in any way, shape, or form. Um, it reminds me that for some reason, some people want to surrender millions of people so that the so that Russia can have a buffer because they're so paranoid about the West um, that they deserve to have nations under their control and subjugation to keep a, a, a gap between them and NATO. Now, they're they're not a victim. These are activities by their own doing. Um, as far as have they been perhaps too successful to restate your question that they are causing some sort of backlash that will undermine their avenues of attack, to, uh, to use one kind of typology, uh, no, I don't think so, because I think the discussions that you're referring to are, A, not going to go anywhere, B, too high level, and too, uh, C, too insular, uh, they're in particular groups, um, and uh, ultimately, uh, I think the Russians, if they decide to continue, uh, will find other avenues to pursue. Uh, I don't think that the cost uh, for their they have they have not the cost of their behavior has not hit the point to cause them to cut back or stop. In fact, if anything, it appears that they are escalating. And I do not believe that they are escalating those attacks and changing those attacks. For example, there was the article last week, I think it was, regarding attacking routers and all that stuff, which doesn't mean it just happened. It's just being reported now. Um, the cost to deterrence isn't there yet. They're not deterred. So, no, I, I think they still see it as, as a success. I, it is a low-cost venture for them. It is a relatively cheap activity for them. Um, and uh, I think they're still taking a, um, taking a longer view. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I don't think they're, they're suffering at all yet. Um, again, I think that the beauty, if you will, of the model of engagement of their toolkit is, is very entrepreneurial. Entrepreneurial. They're just going to go find another way. And especially when the consumers are less educated, you know, I, I think the argument that the consumers, the American consumer is more educated on this is, is not substantially backed up by truth. They may be informed, but I doesn't. It's not clear to me yet that they are changing their behavior. I suppose we will see as time progresses. But uh, um, you know, I still see, and you know, again, I, I don't know that I'm representative at all. In fact, I would argue I'm not representative. But I still see, um, uh, you know, clearly fake news shared online. So. Uh, no, I, I think they're fine. I think they're still good. And uh, again, because we have not truly decided to extract a punishment, made them pay a real cost, they're not uh, changing the behavior. So I, I think we've covered a lot of ground uh, today in our in our conversation, um, and. As per tradition, we usually end the show with our guests uh, giving us 
you know, a last thing to, you know, think about, to chew on, you know, a something to think about before, you know, we go for the day? Um, okay. Uh, so, okay. I mean, so, <laughs> sorry for that pause. I had to think about that. Oh, um, right. <laughs> I had to um, I guess my short takeaway is that despite all these papers talking about how this stuff is all new, it's not to, 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 re- to paraphrase what Mark Twain allegedly said, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. That's true. These, uh, what we are seeing today are the same tactics that we have seen. The technology has changed. Uh, so the speed and, and uh, uh, the speed of engagement has changed. But in reality, these are the same tactics. Another thing that has changed is the cost of failure has dramatically increased because you can now have, and this is, this is outside the scope of Russia, this is more in the scope of ISIS, Daesh, um, and others to be named later as they surface. But you now have the, the individual ability to cause disruption slash destruction to be far greater than it ever has been before, which means the, quote, lone wolf, which and I'm not I'm just using that as a reference point um, is uh, uh, potentially a greater threat than ever has before been before. So these things are not new. The specific technologies have changed uh, and our cost of failure has increased. So we need to get this right. So that's that's all I got. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much for for being a guest on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the conversation.